everybody. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome you all for our ongoing uh, series in the Middle East Institute, particularly with the um, political economy cluster today. Um, I want to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Jonathan Hilton, who's joining us here from Abu Dhabi at the, from the Zaid University. Dr. Jonathan Hilton is an expert on relationships between China and the Middle East. He is the author of um, a recently published uh, monograph titled China's Relationship, The Gluck Monarchy, with co-editor and also the co-editor of External Powers and the Gulf Monarchy. With that, I would hand over the floor to Dr. Fulton to talk to us about China and the Middle East. Thank, thank, you. thank you, Amin. And really, thanks to everybody here at MEI for, for getting me here. This is really a great opportunity. It's nice to uh, be in Singapore. It's nice to not be in Abu Dhabi <laughs> for a few days. It's, it's really hot right now, and it's Ramadan, so we can't drink water in public, and we have to be hot. And, you know, miserable, so it's, it's great to be here, and, and I'm always happy to come back to, to, to Singapore. So, yeah, as, as um, Amin pointed out, I've, I've been writing quite a bit about China and the Middle East. Mostly I've been writing about China and the Gulf. I live in Abu Dhabi. I've been there somehow um, for 13 years now. I expected to be there for three, and uh, I just kind of got stuck. And um, it was kind of interesting for me, because when I arrived, I thought I'd be in, I thought I'd be in the Gulf for three years. Um, I realized that I was going to go on a different track and start working as an academic. And I retooled and did a master's degree in IR. And the focus was going to be how China's energy requirements shape its foreign policy. And what I really wanted to do was look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and focus on Central Asia. And I thought this was a really kind of interesting topic. Uh, the deeper I got into it, I, the more I realized I actually lived right in you know, the story, that the Gulf was really the issue of, of what China is doing for a lot of its energy security. Um, and that kind of forced me to, to redirect my studies and start focusing more on the Middle East. So when I started doing my PhD, the topic was China-Gulf relations. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's been really most of what I've been doing for, for, for the past nine years or so. Now that the, the dissertation's done, the book is done, I'm kind of looking at more at the, the broader Middle East and doing more comparative stuff. So I think it's uh, really interesting to say, you know, how does it look at from North Africa, from the Levant, from these non-Arab places like Israel and, and, and Turkey and Iran. So um, the topic today, which I'm sure everybody saw in the, the posters, um, it's a little nod to Ray Carver, what Chinese leaders talk about when they talk about Middle East security. Um, the reason I'm looking at this is that a lot of what we see with China Gulf um, specifically and China Middle East more broadly, the relationships are, are dominated by economic concerns. You know, China's got a, a tremendous economic footprint in the region. Um, this has led a lot of people to think that eventually they're going to have to change track and uh, take a bigger role in, in securing this. So I want to, to look at this question a little more um, in a little more depth. I'm working on a paper. At this point, this doesn't qualify as political science. It's more analysis and description. Um, but hopefully, you know, after I get some good feedback from all of you and think about it a little more, then, then I'll have something that I can turn into a paper. Um, before I get into it, just a, a couple of points. I mean, obviously, um, well, I say obviously because this is what I work on all the time. I think we all understand that, that China's presence in the Middle East has really increased uh, substantially in a pretty short period of time. When I moved to Abu Dhabi in 2006, 
the only Chinese people I ever saw in the city were the pirated DVD salespeople. You know, there wasn't really a big Chinese presence. When I started the PhD in 2011, I remember talking to somebody from Ubadala, which is a sovereign wealth fund in Abu Dhabi, and saying, this is what I want to work on. And he just kind of like, there's nothing there. What are you going to research? There's nothing to work on yet. And by the time I finished um, and got the book out last summer, the book came out the same week uh, Xi Jinping paid a state visit to Abu Dhabi. It was really either good timing or really smart on my, point, uh, my part to publish a book the, the same week the president showed up to uh, you know, talk about uh, my uh, book topic. So, so it has been a, a much bigger presence for China in the Middle East. In recent years, we can see um, in terms of trade, which is how most of it is framed, uh, last year China Middle East trade came up to a quarter of a trillion dollars almost, which uh, really blows a lot of us away when you look at it. Um, because a lot of the narrative of China's economic footprint is that it's, it's buying a lot of oil. And of course, it's much, much, much more than that. If you get out of the Gulf and you look at China Middle East trade in general, um, the trade imbalance almost always favors China. It's selling a lot of stuff to Arab states or Middle Eastern states and not buying a whole lot. Now, this changes, of course, in the Gulf where you get this trade imbalance that typically favors these energy exporters, but not completely. I mean, the UAE where I live um, always buys a lot more stuff from China than it sells to China, and it's a major energy supplier to China. Um, it's this re-export hub of uh, Jafsa, Jabal Ali in Dubai, where a lot of uh, Chinese products are coming into Dubai and then going out to uh, the rest of the Middle East and Africa and to Europe onwards. So, so they buy a lot of stuff in the Middle East from China. It's not really just a matter of oil for trade. You know, it's a very deep and multifaceted trade relationship. But it's not just trade. We've seen investment, especially as the Belt and Road has, has become a bigger thing. We're starting to see a lot of these Chinese firms are, are playing a much bigger role in, term, uh, in investment across the Middle East. Again, a lot of this is in the Gulf. Um, just this week, there's been stories out of Abu Dhabi that there's a, a potential $10 billion Chinese investment into this Khalifa port in Abu Dhabi. That's going to be a major thing. Um, it's not getting a lot of notice yet, but this is um, a, really big, uh, a really big deal. And after the Belt and Road Forum last month, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid from Dubai was in Beijing, and they announced a $4.3 billion investment into Dubai as well. So China's investing heavily in the Middle East, and it got to the point where in 2017, it became the biggest source of FDI into, into the Middle East, uh, accounting for almost a, th almost a third of, of the, uh, the investment. Um, and beyond that, there's just thousands of businesses and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Chinese expatriates all around the region. So it's a very big physical presence. Um, in Dubai alone, I keep coming back to Dubai because it's kind of ground zero for China's uh, trade networks in the Middle East. Um, in Dubai alone, there's about 4,200 uh, Chinese businesses. In Jebel Ali uh, Free Zone, there's more than 230 companies that have uh, uh, set up a regional headquarters. And the reason, of course, is there's servicing contracts all over the Arabian Peninsula, all over the Middle East. But these CEOs don't want to live in Riyadh. They don't want to live in you know, a lot of other places. They want to live in Dubai where they can have some fun. So it's a much nicer environment. So you're seeing a big um, physical presence. Um, I, I asked a Chinese diplomat recently, how many citizens uh, do you have in, in, in the UAE? And he's like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Can't keep track. I'd asked a Jap uh, Japanese diplomat the same question, and he had it down almost to the 10th. He's like, that's about 1,260, you know? Um, 
With China, we think, we know there's more than 200,000 Chinese people in Dubai. We think there's more than 300,000. It's just an enormous population, and, and this goes way back. There's a really interesting uh, study being done by a colleague in Sharjah named uh, Wang Yuting, and she's looking at um, you know second and third generation Chinatowns in Dubai. There's, there's been these communities that have been, that been there for quite a while. So um, again, this kind of begs the question, why? why? Why are all these Chinese setting up shop in the Middle East? Um, this next slide doesn't really represent my, my perception. Obviously, I live in the Middle East, but typically when people think of, of Middle Eastern countries, um, it's not usually a very positive image, you know? Um, especially in the last 10 years, we've seen a, a lot of political and economic instability. Um, there is, if you look at the Fragile States Index, uh, the most recent one from 2018, nine of the top 25, I, I don't know if I'd say the top, but nine of the 25 most unstable states or fragile states come from the broader Middle East. Um, you know, images out of Syria, out of uh, Palestine, out of Iraq, out of uh, Libya kind of dominate our perceptions. And, you know, when you get out of the Gulf and you get out of Turkey and Israel and you look at a lot of the Arab world, um, economically it doesn't really look that viable. Uh, just looking at... Uh, GDP per capita, you know, you've got on the low end Yemen and on the high end you've got Lebanon, and in between you don't have too many countries that are really performing economically very well. Um, the UN Human Index Development, or Human Development Index typically um, places a lot of Middle Eastern countries pretty low, so again, why would Chinese companies and, and, and state-owned firms be so eager to come into this region where there's, you know, this perception of a lot of problems? And of course, this is just a one-sided view of it. I mean, where I live in Abu Dhabi, uh, you, you're, you're kind of confronted with a different reality on a daily basis. You know, it's a very developed, very prosperous, very comfortable place most of the time. Um, for China, you know, they look at the Middle East, it's crucial for their energy security, obviously. This is a big part of it. More than 50% of their oil imports uh, come from MENA. Um, most of that comes from the Gulf region. Uh, LNG is a big part of it as China tries to transition away from these uh, coal-fueled uh, electricity. They're looking towards uh, making LNG a bigger part of their energy consumption. They just signed a 22-year deal with Qatar, with Qatar Gas to uh, provide, you know, I, I can't remember the numbers, but just a, a very substantial amount of LNG uh, for the next 22 years. Um, so energy is a part of it. And also the BRI, the Belt and Road, as this takes shape, you can't really get from Western China to the Mediterranean or Eastern Africa without passing through the middle. You know, this Middle East is geostrategically a very important hub to get through it. You've got to pass through either the Red Sea or you've got to get through Iran and Turkey and parts of Iraq. Just geostrategically, it's a really important part of, of this uh, initiative. And this initiative, um, I think in the past couple of years, we've kind of started to realize it's, it's, it's a real thing. When it was announced in 2013, a lot of the Western media especially um, really poo-pooed it and acted like, oh, it's just a, it's got a funny name and, and nobody's going to want to partner with China because they're not transparent like us. And we've seen that, that, that narrative has changed quite a bit. It went from being basically ignored to uh, you know, being portrayed as a terrible threat with death trap diplomacy and uh, you, know, you, you can't trust these Chinese firms to, to deliver what they say they will. And, you know, be careful, don't go with them, come with us through the IMF because you've never had any trouble with them. You know, so, you know, obviously the Belt and Road makes the, the Middle East a pretty important uh, region uh, for China. 
And again, just that there are so many Chinese folks who live there and so many Chinese businesses means that they have to consider this strategically. They have to consider the security of this region as, as part of their, their larger Middle Eastern interests. So again, that begs the question, uh, what kind of security role do we think we can expect to see China play in the Middle East? Um, this is something none of us know. Um, everybody I talk to about this, we, we all are of, of different opinions. Um, I'm no oracle, I don't know either, but I've, I've given it a lot of thought, and uh, as I said, I'm working on a paper for this, so hopefully I can take these, uh, these, this, this talk and turn it into something that maybe addresses it uh, a little more um, analytically or more uh, scientifically. So to get there, I'm going to first talk about the U.S. You can't talk about the Middle East without talking about the U.S. can't talk about China without talking about the U.S. Um, I went to Beijing in October. I was talking with a, a Chinese analyst. Uh, he's a, he focuses on Iran. And I just want to say, look, what do you think of, uh, you know, the, 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 this re relationship with the UAE that was just signed? Uh, how's, how's Iran going to feature into this? And every question I asked came back to uh, Donald Trump. Um, I should say out of the gate, I'm, I'm not from the U.S. I'm from Canada, so I don't have any special insight into Donald Trump, as if anybody really does. But... You know, he, he, every question was, couldn't be just about China and the Gulf or China and the Middle East. It was always, well, we would do this if not for this third party, which kind of influences everything. So we, we kind of have to dig into, you know, what role the U.S. plays in, in the Middle East to really understand what China's trying to do. Uh, from that, I'm going to look at how China does things a little differently. What's China's approach to uh, developing relations in the Middle East? Um, is there a difference between how it works or operates than, uh, than how the, the U.S. does? Does it offer a different model, uh, as many people hope or, or, or expect? And then I'm going to look at two competing uh, visions of how China may approach a security role for the, for the region. Uh, I'm sure there's more than two, but uh, just for the purpose of this talk, you know, there is a wide plurality of opinions, but uh, just generally I can break it down into to two general ones. And I know some of you have to leave early, so I'll tell you the two, uh, two ideas are, there's one which is a kind of a traditional hard military approach, which you'd expect uh, to be supported with things like bases and weapon sales and, and true presence and things like this. And then there's a second narrative, um, which is uh, security through development. You know, uh, pour money into problems and the problems will go away. Um, I think many of us coming from a Western tradition would expect the first one to be the orthodox vision and the second one to be kind of the out and left field approach. but. Uh, in, in China, it's actually the opposite. The, the idea of security as, as a result of development is the, the orthodox official um, view of how China's approaching these things. And those who are calling for uh, a military um, approach to security are actually kind of uh, on the outside uh, to a degree. So uh, the first part, how does the US feature? It is, of course, the elephant in the room. Uh, we can't avoid it. Um, It seems, I, I guess, natural. You know, the U.S. Is, is seen as number one and China's seen as number two. China's rising. It's perceived that America's declining. Um, and because of this, we always compare them and say, well, is China going to do things the same way that America has? Or do they have a different model? Is there, do they represent something new? Um, a lot of folks, I, I, I'm a political scientist. I focus on international relations. A lot of realists would say that when you come down to your interest-based uh, foreign policy, you're going to um, probably do things in a very similar way. 
that uh, your interests would dictate that you have to build bases, you have to send troops over, you have to do things in a lot of the same way the U.S. has. But China's in a kind of an enviable, enviable position in the Middle East in that it doesn't have a lot of the baggage that Western countries do. Um, whether that means they'll do things differently is, you know, who knows. But it does mean that people, it's kind of a blank slate that people can project any kind of hope or dream onto. China's going to offer us a new way of doing things. Um, again, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But um, I think it does have a pretty different approach to how the U.S. has done things. Um, and we'll get into that just by looking at what the U.S. has typically done in the Middle East. Um, well, its interests, you know, its three core interests, I think uh, you, can, you can boil it down to uh, three things. Uh, maintaining access to energy for global markets. Um, of course, uh, the U.S. Is, is largely sorted out its domestic consumption needs. But for its trading partners, for this liberal uh, international order um, as it is, uh, you know, Ameri a lot of American allies need Gulf energy. So it's important that this stuff gets out to market, not necessarily for the U.S., but for Japan, for Korea, for other countries that, that America has very dense relationships with. Um, freedom of navigation is another core interest, you know, passing through, again, this very important um, bit of real estate um, to, to reach different parts of the world uh, is a very important interest for the U.S. In, in the Middle East in general, in the Gulf in particular. And, of course, uh, Israeli security is always going to be something that comes up when the U.S. thinks about the Middle East. Um, how it has achieved these interests or how it goes about achieving these interests um, well, it's, it's typically followed a, a balance of, of power logic throughout most of its time. You know, For a long time, the U.S. was an offshore balancer in, in the Middle East in general, in the Gulf in particular. Um, it had token um, troops in, in stationed in, in parts of Saudi and Bahrain, not enough to really alter uh, anything, really. Um, it was a very, very small force of, of, of not many people at all. So it, it was an offshore balancer. It, it, uh, through the 70s, it had this twin pillars approach whereby it supported its allies of Saudi and Iran. We'll work with you guys and you maintain order, the order that we like and the order that, that uh, supports your, your, your states, your regimes. And it was able to do this really up until the Iranian Revolution, uh, at which point uh, the Carter Doctrine kicked in, um, this idea that if any external power uh, tried to make inroads into the region, that the U.S. would repel them by any means necessary. Of course, this is targeted against the Soviet Union, but it was also targeted against regional powers, you know, uh, revisionist powers like Iran or Iraq who might disrupt the status quo. So to this end, you know, the U.S., after the Carter Doctrine in, in 1980, I guess it was announced, um, kind of signaled the end of this offshore business. It was going to be an active player in the, in the Gulf. This is really more a declaration of uh, aspirations, because again, it, it didn't have the means. Most Gulf states, or most Arab states, wanted to keep the U.S. at arm's length. This wasn't long after Camp David. Um, the the so-called Arab street wasn't really happy about having a big American presence uh, in their countries. Um, so when the U.S. said, we're going to start to build a, a bigger presence in, in, in the Middle East, yeah, with who? You know, the only country that was really willing, other than Israel, was Oman, um, which has always been a little independent in its thinking and signed a facilities access agreement with uh, the states uh, which they used to try to rescue some of the hostages in Iran back in, I think it was 79 or 80. Um, 
this made Oman quite an outlier in, in the region. A lot of states really didn't like that Oman was allowing the U.S. to go into uh, Omani bases and upgrade them and, and base U.S. troops there. So it really kind of stayed, you know, um, an offshore balancer throughout most of the 80s until the tanker war started to really kick up. And, uh, and Gulf states realized they needed that the GCC as a mechanism wasn't going to be enough to repel uh, Iraqi intentions or Iranian ambitions, that they would actually need uh, some kind of external security provider. Uh, and the U.S. was, uh, you know, the one that everybody's most comfortable with. So, it, you know, really wasn't until um, this point when, when Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait, and this is the broad brushstroke history. I know that there are specialists here who would say I'm leaving a lot of stuff out, but... Um, you know, it was after uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and, uh, and the U.S. went in and uh, shortly afterwards signed these defense cooperation agreements with uh, Kuwait, with Qatar, with the Emirates, and with Bahrain, and started building up these bases in a very large way, and, and supporting this with lots of troops and lots of hardware, that it finally became really an active balancer that had a, a real physical presence in the Gulf that would be enough to change the balance of power. Um, what this has meant, uh, there's a really good Chinese analyst at the Shanghai Institute of uh, International, what is it, CSUS, Shanghai International Studies University, named Sun De Gong, and he does a lot of great comparative work on uh, China, U.S., and the Middle East, looks at a lot of uh, military stuff, um, and he's, he's described the U.S. as a hard military presence, and by that he means the U.S. has gone into the Middle East largely for geopolitical ambitions, that there have been um, a set of, of core issues like anti-terrorism or, or non-proliferation or, or other kind of hard military issues that lead the U.S. to, to build this infrastructure to, to support its interests. Um, in doing this, what we've seen is a kind of a Pax Americana uh, throughout the Middle East. And I think this is kind of the view um, out of Washington is, is that America's creating this Pax Americana, but from the ground up, it kind of looks a little different. It doesn't look like there's much Pax within it. You know, there's been a lot of uh, turmoil in the region, there's been a lot of conflict, and um, the U.S. hasn't always been seen as the most reliable broker of, of, of maintaining this. Um, but the one thing that's come of this, um, for my purposes in, in looking at this, is that these U.S. bases, these U.S. troops, this U.S. hardware has created this security umbrella, especially on the Arabian Peninsula, that guarantees uh, a minimal um, security risk. You know, nobody really expects to see Iran, despite, you know, their adventurism in Fujairah a couple of weeks ago, nobody would really expect to see Iran attack any GCC, or Iran attack anybody, just because the costs would be too great. The American presence is a, is a very effective deterrent. And what's, what that has meant for other ex extra-regional states like China is that they know they can go into the Gulf, they can build up this big economic presence, they can, they can set up their shops, they can, they can bring over their multinationals, um, knowing that they're not going to have to pay the typical burdens of securing it, that the U.S. Um, security framework or security architecture is going to make sure that their citizens and their companies and their assets are going to be relatively safe. So it's not just China that's done this. I mean, if you look at almost every country, Japan, Korea, you know, a lot of countries have been enjoying this, uh, this opportunity to build a much bigger presence in, in the Gulf in, in, in particular. Um, which is uh, when Amin mentioned a book that I co-edited called External Powers in the Gulf. Um, my colleague at Zayed is a NUS graduate named uh, Lee Chen Sim, and um, she's a Russia Middle East specialist. 
and we, we're just looking at what are different countries doing, what, what kind of strategies are they adopting. And we all saw the same thing, that countries are taking advantage of this opportunity to come in here, um, develop close ties to really every regional state. They're not privileging the GCC countries over Iran or vice versa. Everybody's just coming in and, and, and doing whatever they can get away with, uh, which is a really nice kind of uh, an opportunity that doesn't come up too often. So again, how this contrasts with what China's doing in the Middle East. Well, China's got some different interests. Um, the first one, access to energy for global markets, well, they have the same thing. They want to see global markets getting the same type of uh, um, affordable energy because they are the biggest exporter in the world. So they want all these companies to, or countries to have a lot of money to buy Chinese stuff with. But unlike the U.S., it's also a matter of domestic consumption. You know, as I said earlier, China relies on, on uh, the Middle East for a lot of its energy supplies. So this is a, a matter of, uh, this is a core interest for China to, to maintain the flow of uh, Middle East energy into China to, to help with their domestic economy, to help with their domestic development, to keep uh, the Chinese Communist Party, um, you know, avoiding some of the legitimacy questions they might face if their economy is uh, performing poorly. Um, freedom of navigation, the same. Obviously, with the Belt and Road, this is 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 a is a even more um, important idea. Um, there is nothing about Israel. It doesn't have anything like the same commitment to Israel. Uh, I think they see Israel as a great partner for uh, high tech, um, you know, ports, things like this. But they they don't have anything similar to the U.S. commitment to to defending uh, Israel. Um, but for the domestic economy, it's, it's a much bigger issue for China than it is for the US. Um, as, as I've indicated, the Middle East is a very big export market for China. They're selling a lot of uh, you know, light machinery, they're selling a lot of food and textiles, they're selling a lot of uh, high tech, Huawei's moving in in a big way, uh, satellite navigation. They're, they're selling a lot of stuff in the Middle East. It's an important market. So, um, and they're also signing massive amounts of contracts. Uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but all of these, you know, McKinsey seems to have one model that they're selling to everybody, Vision 20-something. Every country in the Middle East has a Vision 20-something, and Djibouti's got a Vision 20-something, and Kenya's got a Vision 20-something. And what most of these visions are is build up a lot of infrastructure, you know, pour money into building up the state and, and uh, you know, construction and stuff like this. Diversify your economies. Well, this is very... You know, there's a, a great synergy between this and the Belt and Road. I mean, they're almost the exact same plans. It makes me wonder if McKinsey didn't write the Belt and Road Initiative for Xi Jinping, because uh, it really looks like just a perfect confluence of interests in this. So really, when you look at this, China's interests in the Middle East and America's interests in the Middle East don't really diverge. There's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of divergence here. There's a lot of things that they both want. Um, the difference is, of course, that the U.S. has this uh, military preponderance and this, this uh, um, its own vision, I guess, of, of leadership, and China doesn't have these same burdens or, or visions, and it also doesn't have the same approach. Uh, whereas the U.S. is balanced, especially in the Gulf. You, you constantly see them uh, through the 70s and 80s changing relationships, working with Iran and then working against Iraq and then working with Iraq against Iran, you know, and it's just your head spins looking how, how quickly some of these things change. Um, it's not that their feelings about these states has changed, it's that their interests have changed. You know, their interests have remained the same, it's just the means of, of, of achieving them have differed. You can't work with the, the Ayatollah, so I'll work with, you know, Saddam kind of thing. Um, now, China doesn't balance at all in the Middle East, it doesn't balance in the Gulf. Um, 
it's not work, balancing as a strategy requires you to target you know, a third party. You're working against somebody. You're working with one group of states or one state against balancing against power or you're balancing against a threat. Um, this is really inconsistent with what China's doing. It's not going to balance. Um, the other options would be to bandwagon on the uh, regional you know, hegemon or preponderant power, which in this case would be the US, just to follow along and, and do whatever the US does and support it. That also would not support China's interests. They, they can't just you know, uh, hang Iran out to dry the way that the US would prefer they do. Neutrality doesn't match uh, the ambitions of a, a global power just to say we're not going to you know, make a decision here. Um, what I think the best way to look at is as a strategic hedging, which is um, getting more um, attention from international relations literature in recent years. Uh, one of the first people to really look at it deeply is Evelyn Goh, who actually is, I believe, here, or she's in Singapore at least, and has written quite a bit, quite a bit about it. Basically what strategic hedging is, excuse me, it's an option for a state, it's going into a region where it has interests, and it's bumping up against a, a, a preponderant power, or a hegemonic power. Um, to challenge that power is going to, you know, end badly, you know. Um, balancing against any local actors also is going to end badly. You're going to alienate somebody. So instead, you go into this region, you try not to disrupt this ecosystem as much as you can. You work um, under the uh, hegemonic or the preponderant power. You don't antagonize, you don't provoke, you don't uh, do anything that's going to make them upset, and you make friends with everybody. You know, you don't, again, you don't balance. You, you'd be friends with Iran and you'd be friends with Saudi and you'd be friends with Qatar and you'd be friends with the Emirates, you know. Um, the way you'd be friends is mostly um, by demonstrating your utility as an economic actor by saying, look, working with me um, pays these benefits. And again, this isn't just a, a, a strategy China's used. Russia and, and India and Japan and Korea, I would say, are also using the strategic hedging where they're, they're working with every country in the Gulf or every country in the Middle East they're not targeting any one country that they won't work with, and they're building very dense relations, mostly on trade or investment. Um, issues like security or politics get put on the back burner because that's going to you know, cause uh, friction or tension. So it's just much easier to um, develop ties through deep economic engagement. And as this intensifies, as it goes from, say, buying oil and selling cheap stuff to investment to financial, uh, you know, like, for example, uh, Dubai's got uh, um, four head offices of, of Chinese banks that are operating. Um, they, they have uh, a UN or a renminbi clearance center that cleared some, you know, outrageous number of uh, renminbi last year for different uh, trade between China and the UAE. I think it was something like $7 billion. Um, or it's $7 billion worth of renminbi that passed through the UAE and, and, uh, and, and China just last year alone. So what they're doing is going from just trade to finance to investment to just a much more multifaceted, well-rounded economic presence. And with this, keeps adv advancing the relationship a little further, you know, so they get to this point where they are, you know, not just important economically, but they become very important politically as well. Um, so the strategic hedging, I think, really explains a lot of what they've been doing. They've been taking advantage of this umbrella that America provides in developing a very well-rounded relationship with everybody. And one of the questions I keep getting asked is, how long can they do this? They're sitting on both sides of the, you know, they've got to get off the fence. You can't be friends with Iran and, you, and Saudi at the same time. And China's like, what fence? 
There's no fence. America has a fence. We just, we're just here doing business with our friends. You know, it's telling that in 2016 when Xi Jinping made his first trip to the Middle East as president, uh, he went to Saudi in uh, January 2016, and they signed this uh, comprehensive strategic partnership. It's another important tool that China uses. Um, and this is the highest level of, of, of uh, relationship that China confers on any other state. They don't do alliances. They do partnerships. The difference being that uh, an alliance uh, locks you down to certain commitments, um, whereas a partnership just you both agree to work on areas of common interest and, and, and intensify the relations. And if there's something where you diverge, you just dissect it. You don't focus on that. You just focus on the things that you both share. And you, you build up the relationship on, on these, uh, these core interests. So China signed this, this uh, partnership agreement with, uh, with Saudi, and everybody went, ah, that's who they're going to side with. And then the very next day, he flew to Tehran and signed the exact same deal with Iran. And everybody's like, oh, they did it again. You know, we never know what they're doing here. Um, and to me, I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Why would, they, why would they choose? The relationship with Iran serves a purpose. The relationship with Saudi serves a purpose. You know, I don't think they see the Gulf security environment the same way that um, Western countries or, or the US sees it. Um, so why would they have to behave in the same way? And this strategic partnership diplomacy, this is, I think is a really, uh, it's another really important thing to, to consider when they do this. I mean, um, the US uses alliances, and these alliances mean that they, uh, an alliance, again, is something that is inherently targeting a third party. You know, I'm, I'm allied with you, Saudi, and the UAE against Iran, right? Um, that limits really what the US can do diplomatically in this region because you just don't have the same kind of presence in Tehran. You don't have the same kind of relationships. I mean, if you look at the JCPOA um, negotiations, it took so much time for them to just to get to the point where the Americans and the Iranians could talk to each other. You know, like just that kind of trust building didn't exist because there've been, you know, decades of no, of no contact. Whereas China with their partnership diplomacy, you know, being friends with everybody, um, you know, when, when tensions got really bad, bad-er between Saudi and Iran uh, a year and a half ago, um, Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, said, you know what, I can mediate because we're close to both sides. Both sides see us as an honest broker. We have deep interests with both sides, so you're not going to feel we're privileging one side over the other. And there aren't too many great powers that could make that same offer and, and, and be taken credibly or seriously. So this, um, this uh, strategic partnership diplomacy, it's something I've written about a little bit. I, I had a paper in, in the POMEP study that came out a few months ago. Um, I think it's a really interesting angle to how China's pursuing these, these relationships. And again, the fact that um, all of these vision 20-something plans are coming uh, and they fit so nicely with what the, the, um, the BRI is all about means that they're able to really focus on, on areas of, of, of mutual interest to, to take the relationships to a much <coughs> deeper level. Um, again, with Sun Dugong. Sun's a great guy, nice gentleman and a scholar. Uh, he draws a contrast with the U.S. He says, China, whereas the U.S. has this hard military presence, China has a soft one. The reason it has a soft one is it's mission-oriented. It's, uh, it's not focused on, on maintaining a presence. It's focused on having a military that's able to do things like these anti-piracy missions um, in the Gulf of Aden, or whether it's something like uh, peacekeeping in Lebanon or, or um, you know, evacuating, uh, evacuating citizens out of Yemen. 
you know, again, it's, it's, it's um, mission-oriented, which means they don't have to have bases and troops to, do, to pull it off. They can go in and, and get out easily. They don't need the hardware. And the reason why they do this is, again, it's, it doesn't have the same kind of political motivation or the strategic motivation that the U.S. has had. It's mostly economic motivation. Uh, when China looks at these markets, they think, okay, we need energy. We need to focus on domestic development. Again, this uh, China dream uh, for 2049 for China to be a fully developed modern state. Um, this needs, again, a long period of, of uh, stability, tranquility, not adventurism. So, you know, build up um, these regions that, that are important trading partners um, economically and, and, and focus on economic outcomes rather than political or, or military outcomes. So um, the big difference here is that they, they've got different goals and these different goals require different approaches. They don't necessarily have different interests. You know, it's not a matter of they're, 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 they just can't see eye to eye on what they expect out of the Middle East. They're just trying to, to, to engage it with it for, for different purposes, for, with uh, different, different means. So what I'll come to now is uh, what these Chinese approaches actually are. You know, these, how these uh, different visions or, or these uh, approaches play out. So as I said, there's, there's, there's two general narratives. And these slides, I have to apologize. I'm terrible with PowerPoint, as, I'm, as no doubt you can tell. I would, I would have changed this quite a bit. Some of the language is, is kind of sloppy, and there's typos and things. But when I saw this, I thought I, I didn't really like the, the, the second point under traditional hard power, um, this idea of norms and self-perceptions of China's international role. Um, I, don't, I think it's kind of an awkward phrasing, but generally what I mean by this is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stories Chinese people and Chinese leaders kind of tell themselves about their role internationally is framed under these, uh, you know, principles of peaceful coexistence. You know, we don't interfere in other countries' domestic policies. Uh, we kind of stay out of that stuff. Uh, we're win-win development. It, it's, it's always framed in very positive narratives, right? Um, and this idea of, of a, a, a traditional hard power approach to security, of building bases, of, of, of developing alliances, of sending troops into these places and keeping them posted there, well, that's, that's a challenge to this kind of uh, narrative of, of peaceful coexistence and non-interference. Um, and for that, it's kind of the outside narrative. Now, by outside, I just mean it's not the official government. It's not what you hear government officials saying. When you read policy documents, it doesn't talk about this stuff. Um, the people who do advocate for this typically are very influential um, mainstream thinkers. It's just what they're pushing for is not something that you would normally see the government um, make, make into policy. The second one, this idea of security is of development, well, this reaffirms these ideas of, of what China does internationally. It doesn't go into other countries in dictate terms. It doesn't attach strings to development or trade. Um, it doesn't say, yeah, we'll give you this money if blah, blah, blah. You know, like you've got to use very transparent uh, open bidding contracts to build this road. Here's the money, build the road. I don't care if your brother builds it, your cousin builds it, you build it yourself, just build it, you know? So there's um, this idea of security of development because it's not about this hard presence. It's not about this, uh, you know, sending, sending troops into these places. It kind of conforms to how they, this pre preferred way of seeing China's involvement in other countries. And that's why it's more of the official narrative. So just a couple of minutes of, of each one. Um, I pulled uh, just some statements from some, some prominent thinkers for the, the traditional hard power narrative. Uh, I looked at uh, a couple of IR profs. Uh, Shen Dongli is at Fudan University. 
So when I say outsider, clearly this isn't on the outside. Fudan is one of the most preeminent IR programs in the country, and, uh, and Dr. Shen is a very well-known and very well-respected academic. Um, I just say outside because, again, he's been calling for a while for uh, a different approach to the way China's done things. And, and I think this goes back to this um, Tao, Tao Yonghui idea of hide and bide, that um, China's kind of approach its international relations since uh, Deng Xiaoping, you know, uh, uh, hide your capabilities or, uh, and, and bide your time. Um, Shen was writing in 2010 saying, look, this idea of not having bases overseas is actually a problem. Like, we have to start thinking differently about this. We have to stop hiding and biding and start being a little more active. Um, not that I really think hiding and biding is, is a very accurate description of what happened. I used to live in Taiwan, which is where I became interested in China. And when I lived in Taiwan, it certainly never felt like Beijing was hiding or biding um, by any means. But I think it's, it's a pretty good shorthand for this strategy that existed during the era of reform. Um, so what Shen was arguing was, yeah, we need bases. We need to project power. The reason why we need to do this is because we have interests all over the place now. We've got overseas businesses, we've got assets, we've got investments, and we've got citizens. We have to be able to protect those things. Um, so he wrote this very uh, kind of interestingly received um, article in 2010 advocating for this. Um, his argument was with the, the continuous expansion of China's overseas business. The government, again, terrible slides, the government is more accountable for protecting the overseas interests. It's actually got to step up. You can't rely on the U.S. to patrol shipping lanes and, and create this stable atmosphere for us forever. We actually have, we've got skin in the game. We've got to get involved here. And he, he uh, gave a little more details. He said, you know, any, any state's got responsibilities for these things. And, and if China did create these bases overseas, the things we'd see would be that Chinese citizens and wealth would be protected. Um, trade would be guaranteed. We wouldn't have to worry about our shipping lanes be cut off by uh, an angry uh, adversary. Um, we wouldn't have to worry about external intervention and key trading partners, things like uh, the U.S. going into Iran and starting a war, for example, um, and defense against foreign invasion. So he was calling for this in 2010. And at the time, this was not something you really saw a lot of because there, it was still considered taboo almost to say, look, we should... You know, what could be more invasive into another country's domestic affairs than to put a military base there, right? But we've seen this, uh, you know, obviously with, uh, with uh, Djibouti, this base that was created, the, the People Liberation Army supply base in, in Djibouti that, that China built. And it's interesting, I was at a conference at uh, East China Normal University uh, last year, and uh, um, a British academic gave a really interesting paper on Djibouti. He had spent a lot of time in the Horn and, and uh, he'd done a lot of field work. And when he's presenting, he finished his paper and, and a Chinese academic who was at the conference um, stood up and, and very angrily denounced his classification of this as a base. This isn't a base. This is there to support our commercial endeavors. It has no military utility whatsoever. That's not what we do. Everybody knew it was a base, but he had to, he, he had to say it, right? You know, it just, it, it seemed like, a, yeah, you know, he just had to stick up for the five principles of peaceful coexistence, I guess. So we have seen that this, this particular norm has, has already changed a little bit. Um, another prominent thinker, Yan Shui-tong, is uh, one of the top IR scholars. He's at Tsinghua University, um, really great scholar. Uh, I really recommend uh, checking out his work if you're interested in Chinese IR. Um, 
he also kind of took aim at, at, at an orthodoxy, which is the non-alignment policy, which China adopted in 1982. And there's a lot of reasons why a country wouldn't want to make alliances. Uh, you know, some of the, the fundamental work on uh, alliances in the security dilemma is that the, the stronger power has to worry about the fear of uh, entanglement, that you're going to get caught up in somebody else's uh, you know, conflict that you don't want any part of. And the weaker side always has this fear of abandonment that maybe the, the stronger state's gonna leave me. You know? So the relationship's always kind of fraught with this tension. Um, for China, I think it's the fear of entrapment, just as this, as this very large country, um, why, why commit militarily to other countries when they can drag you into their messy, into their messy fights? Again, strategic partnerships rather than alliances. Um, what Dr. Yan was arguing is, you know, if we do this, we're always going to be seen as a little less reliable than an ally. And this has been confirmed when I talk to, to Emirati academics or, or officials and say, could you take China as seriously as you take the U.S. without uh, an, uh, an alliance commitment? And the answer is always a resounding laugh, like, of course not. You know, China right now is a, is in the future maybe, but right now, because they don't have the same skin in, a ga in the game that the U.S. does, we're just not going to take them as seriously. You know? There has to be more than just trade or, or economics. And of course, in a regional security complex like the Gulf, that's always going to be a concern. So for Yan, this is part of the problem, is that you're not going to get the, the best friends when you're, when you're just part, strategic partners. Uh, if, unless you um, pursue alliances, then you're going to always be seen as kind of a, a second tier partner. And he says again, he draws this, this distinction between how China had to operate during the reform era when it wasn't really a, a very powerful country compared to how it is now. He says, uh, non-alignment suited our country during the Cold War when it was weak. However, in the coming decade, China will no longer be the weak country it was. To stick to the non-aligned strategy would not only be unhelpful, but also potentially harmful. And by, by harmful, he just means, look, countries are not going to take us seriously. So we have to you know, express our commitment more, more deeply. So both of these, and, and you know, I could go into many more, but, but I keep looking at the clock. Um, these two thinkers represent this, what, again, with, uh, with what an IR scholar would say, a more realist approach to things, right? Um, it's a recognition that the Taoguan Yanghui, the Heidenbide, doesn't really reflect what China needs to be doing at a period where um, you know, Xi Jinping's uh, you know, be proactive in seeking achievement seems to be the new um, foreign policy mantra. Um, and we've seen this with the PLA base in Djibouti. Uh, we might see this in Gwadar, who knows? But there is a chance that, that there is a lot of diversity in thinking. But for now, this still remains academic because beyond Djibouti, there hasn't been any other talk of another base being developed. And there aren't really any too many countries that would make a logical choice. Um, we do see some very small steps toward this in the Middle East. Again, most of my work is on the Gulf and I'm seeing this in the Gulf a little more. Um, when they signed these, these strategic, uh, comprehensive strategic partnership agreements with Saudi and the UAE, um, there was a section on security cooperation and it talked about things like weapon sales and it talked about things like joint training exercises, uh, counterterrorism training, um, the, the people liberation, um, Army Navy has been, been making a port of calls in lots of different ports uh, around the Arabian Peninsula for a while now. So they're slowly going in, in a more militarized approach, but uh, baby steps. I mean, by weapon sales, it's mostly stuff that the U.S. won't sell. 
You know, uh, Saudi needs ballistic weapons, and, and the U.S. Congress says no. China says yes. Um, the U.S. Congress says we're not going to sell drones. China sets up a drone factory in Saudi and, and sells them to everybody in the Middle East who wants them. So it's taking baby steps, but they're still, you know, it's still at an early stage. And a big part of this, again, is because of the U.S. Uh, there's resistance both on the side of the, the Chinese who don't want to antagonize America in the Middle East. Um, again, this Carter Doctrine, America hasn't said no more Carter Doctrine. If, if China looks like it's building uh, a presence that could possibly challenge this preponderance, then that would trigger a response, right? So, so they, they don't want to do this. More importantly, I think a lot of Arab states also don't want to do this. Um, what is the benefit of saying to China, yeah, come in here and build a base, knowing that this is just going to make everybody in Washington go crazy, you know, and it's going to sever the relationship. We're seeing this in, with Israel right now, where um, Costco has signed this deal to develop a Haifa port, and Pompeo, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and, and, um, and uh, John Bolton are constantly um, haranguing Israeli officials saying, if you do this, and if you let Huawei into Israel, you can't expect us to have the same kind of presence because this is going to challenge our, our core security interests. So I think for a lot of Middle Eastern states, for now, everybody's happy hedging. You know, why let China, let China develop its presence slowly. There's gonna come a time when it changes. For now, keep everything on the down low so it's not going to kind of disrupt this already very fragile, uh, unstable region. Um, almost done, I promise. And that's with the securities development narrative. That is um, this idea of, of uh, you know, the military doesn't provide security. Development provides security, and this is consistent again with with these uh, norms of the five pe uh, principles of peaceful coexistence. It's consistent with the geoeconomic approach that uh, my friend Dr. Soon has talked about. It's consistent with strategic hedging, where you don't alienate anybody, and it's also consistent with a lot of these official statements and, and the vision and action document, which outlines the Belt and Road Initiative um, and how China wants to develop it. Um, a couple of quotes, uh, the former Minister Wang Yi, when it was asked about China's security uh, role in the Middle East, said, you know, we believe the development holds the key and serves as the foundation for solving all problems. Any solution to hotspot and political issues hinges on economic growth and better lives for the people. As far as Arab countries are concerned, the most crucial task facing them is national development and economic revitalization. Um, another shorter quote came from uh, Li Chongwen, who's the ambassador, the permanent representative to the China Arab States Cooperation Forum. When he was asked about uh, security issues, um, he very succinctly said, the root problems in the Middle East line development, and the only solution is also development. And I've seen this many times. I saw a very brave Chinese scholar trying to explain why China used a veto in the UN uh, to, to, you know, uh, in, in, on Syria uh, in Doha. So a room full of uh, Arab people who were very angry about this decision, she tried to explain it. And uh, she took a real flogging for it. But at one point, another Chinese, more senior scholar said, what do you want? A military adventurism looks like Iraq. Is that what you want? Do you want us to go in there with our military and, and start breaking things with the military? Like, it's not going to fix anything. So this is a really deeply held belief, I think, that you know, you're going to get a lot more through development than you're going to be with, with going in with tanks and, and, and soldiers. Um, the China Air Policy paper also focuses on development rather than uh, military solutions. And uh, I, I mentioned a second ago the vision and action document about the Belt and Road, which is something the Chinese government's, the white paper for the Belt and Road was announced in 2015. 
and it focuses on cooperation priorities. Nowhere in this document does it talk about security, you know, military cooperation. It says let's focus on things like uh, policy coordination and unimpeded trade and uh, infrastructure or facilities connectivity and uh, uh, financial integration and people-to-people -people bonds. So their, their approach to this is, is still, it's very economic driven. And I think that's a strategic choice. It just makes it easier. Um, we saw this in action last July. The, the China Arab States Cooperation Forum had its, uh, a meeting that it holds every two years, a minister's meeting. Uh, this drew a lot of recognition because the Chinese government committed to $23 billion uh, in aid and loans and investments into the Middle East. This breaks down to uh, $20 billion for uh, reconstruction, um, $3 billion in special loans for financial sector, money for social stability, humanitarian aid. Um, you know, nothing like money going into uh, building special forces or, or buying hardware. You know, it's all fix your problems. So I'll wrap it up here. Which of the two is more likely to, to win out in the long term? I have no idea. I mean, uh, security development fits into a lot of the ways that China talks about international politics. Uh, it's more consistent, again, with, with a lot of these principles and norms. Um, I think it's also consistent uh, with how they want to act in an especially um, tense period between the U.S. and China, you know, the way things have gone in the past, uh, how, how many months has it been now? You know, uh, this Thucydides trap uh, narrative, which only two years ago, I think, when the book came out, seemed quite uh, out outrageous to most people, and now it seems really quite spot on with how, how the relationship is going. This idea that as a, a rising power grows, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the existing power is going to challenge them and lead to a war. You know, I would have thought that that was uh, crazy talk not long ago, and now it seems not really so far from what we'd expect. Um, so I think in this case, they would continue to not really push a whole lot in the Middle East, to, to keep focusing on these, this economic uh, approach to, to the relationship. Uh, as you can see, why ruin a good thing? If you can keep doing this at no cost, really, if you don't have to patrol the shipping lanes, you don't have to you know, protect your citizens, then you know, keep enjoying it. Um, but that's hard to say, because as this power redistribution is taking place, it's going to lead to a lot of shifts in the international order. Um, it's going to be a lot of new strategic realities that we haven't even really thought of yet that are going to confront us as, uh, as, America, as America's relative power changes, as China's relative power increases, and as it starts to take shape across Asia especially, but across Eurasia, there's going to be a lot of new things that we haven't really built into our thinking yet. Um, and the BRI is going to have some unintended consequences too, and I can think of all these flashpoints in the Middle East where the BRI could lead to something. The one that I think of often is Gwadar in Pakistan, where, uh, again, this is, this is a, a really great opportunity for Pakistan to, to address a lot of its developmental issues. Uh, recently, uh, King, or sorry, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman visited Pakistan, announced that Saudi would also like to start investing in this. Uh, the Chinese response wasn't overjoyed. You know, it was kind of muted. And I'm not surprised because you know, Gwadar is in Baluchistan, which is a contested territory in Pakistan. It's, it's not the most stable area, and it also um, spills over into Iran. So it could be perceived that maybe uh, Saudi's deeper investment in Gwadar could actually be seen as a way to counter Iran, you know, which would politicize China's initiative, 
which could lead to one of these unintended consequences. So I'm going to leave here. I'm sorry I went a little longer than I think I should have, but uh, I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs>